Welcome to the second season of Mixed Methods. I'm so happy to be back and have a couple fun announcements before we start today's episode. First off, Mixed Methods is on Medium. Aaron Whitworth, a recent PhD grad from UT Austin School of Information, is leading the charge, and I couldn't be happier. So if you want to stay up to date with UX research trends, hear from thought leaders in the space, and generally know what we're up to, follow us on Medium. Second, we're building a toolbox for you. More details to come in the next few weeks, but safe to say Val Pusilowski, a UX researcher at Spotify, is a rock star, and we're hoping you'll like what we've been up to. I'm also so excited to announce that we have two amazing partners that will be supporting this season. UserZoom, a UX research tool that combines qualitative and quantitative tools with unparalleled customer support. Learn more at userzoom.com. And dscout, a remote research platform that is turning fieldwork on its head. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. With those announcements out of the way, here's today's episode. Jared Spool is one of the most influential voices in UX. After a stint as an engineer, Jared went on to found User Interface Engineering in 1988, a leading consulting firm that specializes in website and product usability. Jared is a prolific writer, speaker, and advocate for UX with the ambitious goal of ridding the world of all bad design. As he will describe, He's also more recently taken on the challenge of starting his own school to create the next generation of UX professionals. So I wanted to find out a bit more about how Jared built the enviable career he's now so well known for and what inspired him to do it. This is Ariel Sionflon and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Becoming Jared Spool. So I thought that we could start today with just a brief introduction. So if you want to maybe just speak a little bit um, you know, briefly about your career, what you're doing now. I'm not good at introducing myself. <laughs> um, other than to say, hi, I'm Jared. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm the co-CEO and co-founder of Center Center and founder of UIE. Uh, and I've been doing this since for 29 years. And before that, I was a software engineer and my work is all around trying to figure out how to eliminate all the bad design from the world. Yeah. Not an ambitious goal at all. Yeah. No, that's my, I figure it's a hundred year mission mm-hmm. and that uh, I'm probably 30% into it. So it just means I have to live a really long time. Yeah. No, I I, I love that goal. That's a, That's a great goal. I think if your goal isn't going to be ambitious, I'm not sure it's worth having. So that's a great introduction. Obviously, you're leaving out, you know, that you're one of the most influential voices in UX. Um, And as you said, you've had this long and amazing career. And so like one of the things as I was thinking about having this conversation with you, that, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about. Um, And I just wanted to kind of start with what got you interested in this work? You know, you, you started out as an engineer. There's so many different directions that you could have gone. So, yeah. How did it kind of start for you? Yeah, I don't know how how influential I am. I mean, every time I hear myself talk, it always feels like things I've heard before. <laughs> um, doesn't seem that new or novel, but other people seem to like it. Um, you know, what got me started initially was I was mostly interested in 
I, I was designing software and I was at the, I was just sort of in the right place at the right time. I was, I was working on personal computers, designing software for sort of the first generation of personal computers. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to figure out, well, if you're going to have a computer on your desk, what does it need to have on it? Right. So there was a time when there were no desktop computers. And so the things that we think of today of, you know, having an email client or having a, uh, a spreadsheet or even having a desktop, those things didn't exist because you didn't need them when you had uh, other types of computers, but you did need them for a, a desktop computer. And they weren't obvious. I mean, there were, there were lots of attempts to do this. And I was involved in a whole bunch of those designs and spent a lot of time studying what other people were doing. And at the time we were making systems that were, that were really built by engineers for engineers. And they were, it was expected you would read manuals as expected you would go to training and that you would never use something without having done a lot of preparation before you sat down and started to use it. And the idea that you would sit down and just be able to figure it out by looking at it was, was a novel idea. Um, so this idea that you would go and, and sit down and use it, we didn't know anything about how to do that. I mean, nothing. And we were all figuring that out. And that really intrigued me. It was such a radical idea. Nobody thought it was possible at the time hmm. because there, no one had ever done it. Yeah. Um, and just figuring out what the methods are for figuring that out was was fascinating. Yeah. So how did you get from that to, you know, the, the goal that you just stated of eliminating all bad design from the world? Well, uh, so we've been plugging away at that and we'd been plugging away at that for about 10 years. And at that point I had this tragedy in my life. My first wife passed away hmm. and she, uh, she wasn't supposed to die. She, she had at the time when, and for, for many years before she'd had multiple sclerosis, which is a debilitating disease, but it doesn't kill you. Mm -hmm. It just makes you miserable for, for much of your life. And, uh, but she had gotten complications due to that. And part of the reason that she had gotten complications was that a computer system failed. Huh. She had been. She had been maintaining her quality of life with regular physical therapy and occupational therapy. And those were expensive, difficult sessions. And the insurance company looked at them and, and the computer decided that multiple sclerosis is a disease that can't be cured. So therefore, it doesn't make sense to keep paying for these things. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. I was just doing research on different methods that were out there, and I came across a ebook that was put out there by UserZoom, and two things set UserZoom apart for me, it's the tools plus the support. And having that support is a game changer when you're building a culture of user experience research. Want to learn more? Go to userzoom.com. So therefore, it doesn't make sense to keep paying for these things. Huh. So it just started rejecting payments. So, in, and we didn't know it for months. So in addition to having racked up unreimbursed 
claims uh, for months uh, that we didn't know we were supposed to be paying for, we had to stop that, that stuff. And it, and it stopped for about a year and a half. And in that year and a half, her mobility dropped tremendously to the point where she struggled to just get do basic things that you and I take for granted, like get in and out of bed, get on and off the toilet, things like that. And when your mobility drops and you spend a lot of time in a wheelchair, you end up getting uh, rashes in parts of your body that come in contact with the chair. Mm-hmm. And uh, those rashes develop, if they get bad enough, they, they develop into open sores. And then in one of those open sores, a bacterial infection crept in and, mm-hmm. and that killed her. And the really sad thing was, was that about a month before she'd contracted the infection and, and, and died 24 hours later, a month before that, we had convinced the insurance company to assign us a human case representative. And they looked at what the computer had decided, decided that it was wrong, and reestablished the occupational therapy and the physical therapy. Oh. But it was too late. Mm-hmm. And at that point, or at a very short point after that, I came to the conclusion that it was poorly designed computer systems that had killed my wife. And it wasn't the only story I'd heard about that. I mean, I'd heard, I'd heard this story from lots of people, very similar things happening and realized that we had to, we had to rid the world of all the badly designed things. Yeah. That's an incredibly powerful story. I mean, I feel like that kind of even changes the way that I, I think about like, you and your career because like it's just such a it's just such an incredible and such a kind of powerful personal way to start a career like this yeah I mean it's it's in some ways it wasn't the start of my career I'd been 20 years into it at that point Mm -hmm. um but uh it definitely reframed why and how we were doing what we were doing and it gave us whole new meaning you know up until that point UIE, the, the company that I'd started in 1988, my wife died in 1996. So, so up until that point, the, uh, the company was basically just a design services firm. We did usability testing and some design work and things like that. Uh, but after that point, our mission became much more clear and we were just not about, you know, it's not just about doing any usability design. It was all about how do we figure out what the bad design in the world is? And then how do we start to eliminate it? And we knew at the time that this was probably an impossible thing to do, but we decided what the hell. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, all of that kind of, you know, you, you really did just kind of articulate a little bit of what your conception of UX was at the beginning of your career and how it changed. But I would love to kind of hear you like speak about that specifically, because I think one of the things that's so valuable and so interesting, you know, for someone like me talking to someone like you is you, you just have this, this different perspective, right? Like you have had the, the benefit of seeing the industry change so much and have, have a lot of experience. So I would love to hear you kind of say a little bit about you know, what your conception of UX was when you were starting. And then like now as someone who's 30 years in, like how you think about that. 
Well, we didn't think of UX when I was starting. I mean, that was not even a term that that we thought about. Mm -hmm. um, the word usability didn't even really come into common use for, you know, I started in 1976. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not unusual for me to be standing in front of audiences that weren't even born then. In <laughs> fact, there are projects that I worked on that are older than than most of the people, than many of the people I speak in front of these days. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, it was called Software Human Factors. Mm -hmm. And it was an extension of the human, human factors, factors works that, that had started, started in the, uh, in the really coming into form in the 50s and 60s and, and early 70s, which was in the 70s, there was a, a big push towards ergonomics. Everybody was now sitting in chairs all day long, you know, up before that. You were up and moving around all the time and mm -hmm. doing physical work, but in the in the 70s, you were a large number of knowledge workers were now sitting in chairs, and and if you had the wrong chair, you would be you would be uh, uh, temporarily or permanently damaged. So, so people were 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 working on on physical ergonomics. How do you? What's the best way to sit in a chair? And so in that period, we started working on software ergonomics and software human factors and trying to understand how do you, how do you make software that accommodates the form of the human, just like we were making physical things that accommodated the form of the human. And it was a branch of sort of cognitive psychology, though at that time, cognitive psychology had not thought about design. So, so this was all fascinating, right? Because there was nowhere you could go to study this. There were no programs. There were no schools. You, you, could, you could study. I ended up studying social psychology hmm. because social psychology was the best place to learn experimental design. And I was interested in the experimental design portion of it. Could we iterate over designs and change something based on a series of experiments? And that fascinated me. So that, that's where I got started was, was, was there. But you, you had to go into social, uh, social sciences and social psychology, to which, you know, at the time, all the studies and the experiment design was, you know, could you design an experiment that would predict heart failure? Mm -hmm. You know, could you, could you figure out what medications actually improve longevity in life? Could you – there was a lot of work done – um, around pain and around um, the perception of pain. Uh, there was a lot of work done because of, uh, well, it's a popular topic these days, because of the Nazis, basically, mm -hmm. uh, to figure out how do people become those people mm -hmm. and, yeah. and what, what is the, and a lot of that was done by, you know, this notion of nature versus nurture. Are you, are you genetically inclined to be an evil person or, or is that something that, that you're, um, socialized, you're, mm -hmm. you're socialized into. And so, and you get into things like the Milgram studies and all sorts of things. So that's, that's where all the experiments were being done. So when I studied experimental psycho uh, psychology, I was studying Milgram studies and how did they actually conduct the experiments to come up with the results mm -hmm. and what is, what is the, the science and the math behind that. And then I was turning around and applying that to my work and saying, well, how do I, how do I apply this stuff to, to designing software? 
and nobody knew how to do that. We were we were inventing it. I mean, I, we were, I was in the very first usability tests that were ever done on computer software. That's amazing. And yeah, it was, it, it's weird to think of it. At, you know, oh yeah, I, I I just happened to be in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was one of of five people who were who were involved in that project. No big deal. And, yeah, and <laughs> and at the time we it was no big deal, mm-hmm. right? It was just a bunch of us in a corner not knowing that this was going to change become an industry. We didn't think this is like we have to get this right. This is going to be the first, you know, whatever we do here, it's it's the first thing. It's like I don't know. The it, it the whole attitude was, hey. What if we did this it, it, to the point where our, the first usability lab for software ever built was a um, an air conditioning closet, which had a big <laughs> giant air conditioner in it. And we had to shut the air conditioner off in order to conduct the usability tests. Oh, my gosh. I love stories like that, because I mean, like that's that's the reality of, you know, experimentation and discovery and exploration is like typically like you don't know that you're you know participating in this moment in history so often so it's amazing to hear someone talking about that moment you know and just being in an air conditioning closet exactly right i mean we 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 had no idea we 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 didn't know that what we were doing was there it's really funny so um that building was in maynard massachusetts mm-hmm. and about 20 years later i got invited to speak in that building, but by then it had been completely refurbished. And the floor that the lab was on was now run by uh, monster.com. That was their offices. And uh, they had part of the, the, the meeting that I was at where I was speaking, they had just built this beautiful usability lab. Mm -hmm. And before I went to speak, they offered to give everybody who was coming to the meeting a tour of their usability lab. And so they gave this tour and it was a lovely lab and it was way bigger than what we ever had. Mm-hmm. And I turned to the person who'd built it and I said, you do know that the very first usability lab was built on this floor just down the hall from here. He goes, no. I said, yeah, the very first one, it was right here. And so we went down. It turns out that space now is a kitchen. Oh <laughs> and that's, that's, where, that's where the company kitchen was. And I said, yeah. We're standing in the usability lab, except it's this corner of the kitchen. <laughs> You're like, we need to get a plaque or something. Yeah. I mean, this is a historic spot. Yeah. This, this, this kitchen used to be the first usability lab ever built. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. Long before starting this podcast, I knew about DScout. I had heard from friends about an app where you could get paid to tell people about your experience doing something like shopping for a pair of pants or your daily yoga routine. As a researcher, obviously I was intrigued and then impressed when I checked it out. Dscout makes it crazy easy to set up studies and get in-context moments about the topics you're most interested in. The app is changing the way research is done from postmortem to an in-context experience sample. Learn more at dscout.com. That's got to be so amazing, you know, for someone like you who was there kind of at the inception of this to see how much it's grown. Like all of these usability labs, all of these professionals, really like this whole community that started with, you know, just this little, this little teeny group and a little teeny closet. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's in some ways it's very weird, mm-hmm. right? It's a very strange thing to, to. To think that that you know, 
something we were doing that from our perspective was just this hack turned out to be so important and so big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you talking about that story, which is so fun to hear, um, you know, as someone who's kind of the beneficiary of that work that you were doing and that experiment that you were doing, I'm curious because it's just such a unique perspective to have been like one of the people in the small closet to now, you know, being one of the voices of this community that's really like leading this community. Like, what are you, what are you excited about? Like, where do you want, you know, where's the next experiment or like the next place that you want this community to go? Oh, yeah. When you said I was one of the people in the small closet, I actually have never heard it phrased that way. And it makes me makes me feel like somehow I came out of the closet, which I'm, you know, I'm perfectly happy to have done. Um, at some point I emerged from the closet. Um, and I want to point out that there were a lot of people who are really smart, who are in that project, mm-hmm. um, who became really fundamental. I, it wasn't just me. I've just, you know, I've gone my path. They've all gone theirs, but, um, there was a woman named Sandy Jones who basically invented contextual design hmm. along with a guy named John Whiteside who who really taught us everything we knew about psychology at the time. Uh, he built the team. Uh, there was a guy named Bill Zimmer who was the manager of that group that that had the foresight. He had no idea what we were doing, but he was he had the foresight to, to let a bunch of smart people do really smart things. Uh, Dennis Wixon went on to uh, become uh the head of UX for Microsoft Games and invented the right method and did this magical stuff around um iterative design. Uh Jim Burroughs. There's a whole bunch of really great people. Uh the second generation included people like Karen Holtzblatt, uh, who who sort of popularized contextual design, uh Sandy's original work. So there was there was there's some some really wonderful people who were involved in that. So I, I was just a, uh, you know, at the time, I think I was 20 years old. So I was just this, this child amongst <laughs> all these amazing people. I just, just happened to be right there, time, right you know? place. Yeah. To answer your question about, about where it's going and stuff for me, the thing that's most interesting is this idea of bringing everyone into the design process. Mm-hmm. So, it went from software human factors to usability work to user experience work. And now it's goes under the moniker of UX design. Design sort of got molded into this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Cause we realized that just evaluating things all the time is not good enough. You actually have to change something at some point. And, yeah. and, and so you've got this idea of a UX designer and that became this sort of career path for the longest time. And however, that path of being a UX designer, I think is, is a numbered idea that, um, everybody is at some level, a UX designer. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, the clearest example is, you know, I, I would be hanging around places with Dana Chisnell and I would introduce her to people uh, when she was back working at the White House in the U.S. Digital Service, I would introduce her as the highest placed user experience designer in the federal government. Mm-hmm. And she would always snicker at that and then correct me. 
And she would say, no, I'm not. My boss's boss is the highest placed user experience designer. And her <laughs> boss's boss was was the president at the time. Yeah. And at the time, I, I thought, oh, that's cute. But now that, that that guy is no longer president and we have another president, I actually believe her, right? I mean, the whole user experience of interacting with government has changed since November 2016. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he is... That that person is designing the experience of being part of this country, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And that happens all the time, right? When the person from legal comes in and says, you have to change the screen to put this, you know, checkbox up that says, I agree to the terms and conditions. Or worse, they say, we have to present the terms of conditions and make the user scroll all the way to the bottom before we let them use the software. And because they're designing, they are now also a designer. Mm-hmm. Yet they're designing very poorly. Just like for decades, we've had lots of designers designing very poorly. And they're no different than any of them. And the way we've always gotten from poor design to good design to great design is through learning about design. Mm -hmm. So if we could help that person from compliance, understand that they're designing, understand the difference between good design and bad design, understand how to predictably get good design outcomes, and then understand how to go from good design outcomes to great design outcomes, they will design something that's a much better experience that accomplishes the goal because that's what design is. Design is the rendering of intent. Mm -hmm. And they have this intent that the person understand that there are rules to using this thing. But have they rendered that intent the best way by forcing them to scroll to the bottom before they can use the software? Mm -hmm. And so that's design. Design is the rendering of intent. So how do we help them be designers? So this recognition that designers aren't just the people who HR has given the official title of designer to designer, everybody who has any influence over the product is doing design and they need to understand how design works to do a good job of that. Cause when you don't understand design, the odds of accidentally coming up with a good design are very slim. The odds are against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about that this particular um, subject because I feel like your career, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like your career really demonstrates a desire to help everyone become a designer. I mean, you're one of the most prolific writers that I've come in contact with in this field. And, and I wonder if that's, you know, partially because, well, I should ask you, like, like what has, what has made you so prolific in terms of like the content that you're putting out there for people? And, and is that related to this idea of, you know, empowering everyone to become, um, you know, a great designer, a great user experience designer? Well, it goes back to the mission, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, there are not enough designers to help all the products and services in the world have great design. I mean, they're just, there's nowhere near enough of them. Mm-hmm. So we either have to make more or we have to take people who aren't designers and turn them into designers. And so if we're going to eliminate all the bad design from the world, 
then we have to create more designers. And the only way to do that is to make people more aware of what design is about. So, I mean, to me, it just seems like, I mean, I don't have any other way to do it. Mm-hmm. I got this mission and, and this is how we're going to complete the mission. I can't think, I, I have no clue how to do it any other way. Yeah. And I think that's such a great segue into, you know, one of your most recent projects, which is Center Center. Um, and I would love to maybe have you just give a, a brief description of that for people who are unfamiliar and then talk a little bit about, you know, what you're doing with it and, and why. Uh, it's a school. It's a, it's a, a school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a bricks and mortar school. It takes two years to complete your degree. Uh, you get a diploma in UX design and technology. And uh, the whole purpose is to create designers. And our goal, our ambitious goal is to, within five years, have 500 students in the school and to be graduating students every six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And basically, what we're trying to do is for all the products and services that don't have designers today, we're trying to create an army of designers to serve their needs. And uh, to do that, we had to design a curriculum and we had to design a, um, a, a whole program. We, we, we built the school from the ground up. And to do that, to figure out what that needed to be, we went out and we did a ton of research with uh, hiring managers mm-hmm. and asked them, you know, when you, what do you look for when you hire designers and have you tried hiring students and what's, what's gotten in your way and what do you wish designers knew that they don't know when they come into your business? And from that, we, we got this, a deep understanding that hiring managers are very frustrated in general, and they're particularly frustrated around students Mm -hmm. and recent graduates because they are not ready to work. They don't know how to do design work in their company. And many organizations that bring in more junior designers have to build this incredible infrastructure around taking a junior designer that's this very rough individual and turning them into this finely cut jewel that can execute effectively um, to the point where some companies like IBM have built an internal school. Uh, In the case of IBM, it started at six months. They've got it down to three, followed by a three-month internship, where they take people right out of design school and they put them in this program. And for the first three months, all they're doing is teaching you how to work at IBM except there's only about three weeks of material in that three-month period that's actually specific to IBM. The rest of it is just like how to, how to sit in a meeting and how to uh, uh, write emails and how to uh, think about a design process and how to uh, present your work and all of these things that you need to know but aren't taught in school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the next three months are just putting those things into practice. So we, we looked at that. We talked to the folks at IBM and we talked to the folks at about 40 other companies. And we compiled a list of what we call competencies that define what it would take for someone to come out of school and be what we call industry ready. Could they come out of a program and be ready to start work in a program? And then we, 
we went from there and designed a program to teach students how to be competent, proficient at those competencies. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's what Center Centers become. Yeah. So one thing, I mean, first of all, I think it's amazing, as I was mentioning before, just the resources that you've created for this community, because there's Center Center. There's also the All You Can Learn Library. So I'm I'm curious, like who you would say Center Center is meant for versus the All You Can Learn Library, um, you know, versus maybe like a more traditional master's program like Carnegie Mellon's HCI or something like that. Like who would you kind of like refer to each of those resources and why? Right. So the the more traditional universities are are just they're academic schools. Mm-hmm. And even though some of them have more practice-oriented programs, they are still built on an academic model. So and and the academic model hasn't changed since the first university uh, that was started by Saint Ignatius uh, <laughs> back in in the what 13th century, 14th century, right? <laughs> and the Ignatius of Lo- Loyola. Oh. And it was started in in uh, 1500s. It's when he started started the school. And the um, Loyola was um, was intended to just teach people to to teach the the teachings of the Pope. Right. So it was, you know, its entire purpose was to spread the gospel of Jesuits. Mm-hmm. And it was set up to to create teachers because what they needed at the time was to be able to to help help have more teachers in the world. They had the same problem with teachers that we have with designers. There mm-hmm. weren't enough teachers to teach everybody. They knew that the only way they were going to survive is if they could make people understand uh, not just religion, but just life in general. Yeah, get and the word so, out. Exactly. You know, in order to in order to actually read scripture, you have to be able to read. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a mastery of language. And in order to expand on the scripture and to be able to explain it, you have to have an understanding of, of philosophy and you have to have an understanding of of human uh uh the human psyche. And and uh so all of the what we now call the the humanities sort of started out of that program and programs today all come from how we teach the humanities and that hasn't changed since you know 1539 and the basic process of we're going to open your head and pour a bunch of knowledge in and then seal it up give you a test to make sure you've you've got it in there safely and then send you on your way that that method hasn't changed. And frankly, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for the humanities and it doesn't work for engineering hmm. uh, and, and developing and designing and all the things. Um, and, you know, I do, I go around, I give these talks and, and one of the talks I, I, I ask people to write down all the things they accomplished in the last week. I said, take out a piece of paper, write down all the things you accomplished. And then I, I suggest that they, Next to each of the things that they accomplished, I say, okay, I want you to write down a number between zero and 100 that represents the percentage of the skills that were needed to do that job that you learned in school. And hardly anybody ever has more than a 25 as their highest number for Mm -hmm. all the things they did last week. And the, 
the reality is, is that most of the time, most of the work we do, we don't learn in school. We learn on the job. And we don't train people to learn on the job. We don't train people to be good at, at that. We don't create our workplaces to be good at learning on the job. And so if we're going to create workplaces that allow us to be better at working on the job, we need to change the way we think about learning. And so all you can learn is, was, is our first attempt at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe say a little bit about what that is for people who aren't familiar with the All You Can Learn Library. So all you can learn is, is uh, you know, we do these conferences and we, um, we started doing, for people who couldn't come to the conferences, we started doing online webinars. We call them virtual seminars. And every time we did one, we recorded it. So it became this repository. So it's this library. It's got more than 300 UX presentations from industry experts all over the world. And we highly curate it. So it is basically the best experts talking about really important topics um, and where where we spend a lot of time working to make sure that they um, the topics they're doing are, in fact, uh, the most important things. And so uh, and they're, you know, at the state of the art. So they're not they're not just any random presentation. They're all high quality stuff. And so we have them all in there. And they become this resource. Uh huh. You know, when I hear the story of your work and your career, it seems like there's this common thread of learning something and applying it, learning something and sharing it, learning something and, you know, creating a school to teach it to other people. And, you know, when, I, when I'm looking into the industry and I'm looking at, you know, all of the, the most influential voices, I feel like you have been so, so skilled at sharing and like really creating community. And I wonder, you know, what has been most crucial to your success doing that and just in general? Tenacity. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think to some extent it's, it's just about sticking with something and trying. And if it doesn't quite come out the way I want it to, trying again. And so uh, being very tenacious in that regard is, has been, been key. Uh, so, so that's my, my sort of quick answer to that. Yeah. Well, what would be an example of that? Well, I, I definitely don't always get things right the first time. (laughs) Uh, so, so here's the thing, right? So for the longest time, we thought the web was one thing, right? We thought the web worked a certain way. And then as we did more work, we realized, no, we were wrong. That, that wasn't quite right. And this has happened many, many times in my career where, where something we thought, here's an example. There's this perception that in, in, with something like a usability test, you only need to test a small number of users in order to, to be able to uh, see enough results that you can, you can just say, Yes, we've seen all the big problems. You know, if we test five users or eight users, that's all we need. And we don't need anything more than that. And it turns out that 
everything we thought about that was not true. That was all done back in the 1980s and 1990s when computers were far less sophisticated than they are now, when there was no use of notion of, of being social online, when uh, applications at best would be considered a hit if they had 10,000 users. Whereas now, you know, we've got websites and services with billions of users. And so uh, there's no way that five people will predict all of the pr- major problems that a billion users will have. Mm-hmm. It just sounds stupid when you say it out loud, but there are still, <laughs> and, but this is still being taught. This is still out there. And so, you know, years ago we published research that showed how sure, you, you know, five users is all you needed or eight users was all you needed. And then we tested our first e-commerce re- website and we realized, oh my gosh, we just found out major show-stopping problems on user 41. And we should have never found that out on user 41. We should have seen it way before then. Why didn't we see it? And turned out that we didn't see it because we didn't have enough people and we didn't have the right people and we didn't know how to recruit people and all these variables that we were not taking into account. The first time we saw it was on a site that sold CDs. And the first 40 users that we tested were all interested in pop music. And user 41 was the first user we'd come in contact with that was interested in classical music. Hmm. And it turned out, while the site was pretty good for popular music, it was horrible for classical music. And, you know, you have this notion of an artist, but what does an artist mean in classical music? You could look up Beethoven, but people who search for classical music actually don't Beethoven's the easy part. It's which recording of Beethoven's fifth symphony that you want because there's 7 million of those. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you say, well, what I really want is the London Symphony Orchestra version of that. And I really want the London Symphony Orchestra version under Michael Tilson Thomas. Uh, so how do you hone in on that recording? And that turns out to be a really hard search problem that you don't have when you're looking at Britney Spears albums. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, not quite as many nobody covers. Wants, <laughs> yeah, nobody wants Britney Spears albums, let alone, you know, that level of specificity on them. So it, it turns out that, that's, that that was a problem we didn't know. So, you know, to get back to your question, the, the, the issue then becomes how do we how do we have the humility to go back and say, you know, that thing we thought was a, an unmovable truth. It turns out we were completely wrong. Our whole frame of reference tells us that, in fact, we've been collecting the data wrong and we've been doing everything wrong up until that point. Yeah. I mean, so just to kind of like summarize what you were saying, it's tenacity. It sounds like paired with humility and like a willingness to reevaluate some of the things that you, you know, maybe tenaciously thought or advocated for. Right. Yeah. I'm not completely committed to every anything we've ever written or done. I believe that 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 everything is still open for debate. And uh, that is, uh, in my mind, uh, a critical part of the process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to be sensitive to your time, but one last question would be just, you know, if you're talking to someone who's newer in this field, what advice would you give to them? Like, what do you feel like is most important for people who are, you know, starting to be involved and participating in this community? 
the, the biggest advice is uh, to always be yourself. The, the coffee mug we have at, at the school says, you know, always be yourself unless you're a unicorn, then be a unicorn. <laughs> the number one critique that I have these days, people always show me their, their portfolios. They show me their um, uh, resumes. And I read through this stuff and I think to myself, this is good stuff, but I don't see you here. I don't see who you are. You know, in their portfolio, they'll describe their process. This is my process. My process is that I, I first do research and I, you know, I talk to stakeholders, then I do research, then I write, create sketches. And then every, every portfolio seems to have this requirement where you have to have at least one shot of a bunch of people standing in front of a wall full of post-its. <laughs> and then uh, and then I created these, these mock-ups and then I created these prototypes and then I usability tested this and then and then we shipped it, right? And the process is all the same. And it's like, okay, good. You've got a basic process. That's a good process. Who are you, right? What makes you, you? Tell me about that. Tell me what your, your challenge is. Tell me what, what part of this was hard. Because for some people, the sketches are going to be hard. And for other people, the talking to stakeholders was going to be hard. What was hard? And how did you overcome that? How did you get to this, this result? Help me understand what you learned in that process. What did you not know at the beginning of that project that you now know? Mm -hmm. uh, what challenges did you run into? And how did you overcome them? Those are the things that I want to see that I never see in, for, in these first cuts of, of people's portfolios. And that's what, what I've learned the hiring managers want to see. You know, they know what design process is. How did you learn how to produce the work you did? And how did you learn how to do the things you weren't taught in school? Because they have a whole bunch of things that you weren't taught in school and you have to be able to do them. So how mm -hmm. are you going to learn that? And they want to see that you are capable of being dropped into the middle of something that you're completely unfamiliar with. And that you can navigate your way out of that and produce something pretty awesome in the process. That's what they want to see. How do you, how did you navigate your way out of not knowing at all what the hell you were supposed to be doing? And so that's my advice is always be looking for that story. I think that's amazing advice because so often, you know, especially when you're in, you're newer to a career, I think you're afraid to show vulnerability or to show like, I had this challenge and it was really hard for me to figure out how to do this. But, you know, like you're saying, it's so important to show our humanity, show ourselves a little bit in the same way that as researchers, we're here because we want to bring, you know, as Elizabeth Churchill said, we want to bring humanity into technology. So I think that's really good advice. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, Elizabeth Churchill is one of the smartest people on the planet. So if she said something, I would, I would buy. <laughs> Me too. Well, thank you so much, Jared. This has been such a this has been such a cool conversation for me, and it's amazing to kind of hear a little bit about you know what it's like or how you became you know Jared Spool, the Jared Spool that we all um, you know know and appreciate today. So thank you so much for you know telling us a little bit about your story and and what you've been up to. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I can't wait to hear how I became who I became. <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll send you a first cut. <laughs> That'll be awesome. Thank you very much for encouraging my behavior. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Jared on Tuesday, September 12th at 1 p.m. Pacific time. If you aren't already a member of the group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter for more great content and to stay up to date on the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer. Isn't the new music great? And Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.